1: For as long as humans have had too much available to eat, and too easily, many of us have wondered how to keep on top of our ballooning weight.
2: So about a year ago, I realised in the world of COVID, people fell into one of three categories. Chunk, drunk, or hunk. Those who exercised, those who drank their way through lockdown, and those who ate their way. And I was a little bit more of the chunk variety.
1: No, you're not listening to some confessional radio. That's The Economist's Kenneth Couquier telling us about something he got concerned about after one of the recent Covid lockdowns.
2: I just looked down at my body and realised this isn't who I was. Um, It was pretty amazing, very fleshy, very flabby. And I was never really a sportsman, but this was just not my body type. Ken decided
1: to do something about it, though.
2: I went on a crazy diet, which was in effect keto. Uh, Just threw out all carbohydrates, all sugars, both natural and processed.
1: All I had to do was not eat a bread roll and not eat dessert. There are plenty of diets out there that try to do lots of different things. It's fair to say that most people find that they can't stick to them. I had tried to go on a
2: diet years before and... I found that it did weird things to my mind. And I went into like a weird state of hunger pains and an angry, weird mental state, put it that way, that was actually quite frustrating and bothersome and felt almost quasi-dangerous.
1: One of the problems with many of the diets you probably know about is that their advice is targeted at entire populations rather than individuals. They just can't give advice based on someone's individual physiology, or their routines, or their preferences or habits. People choose to diet for lots of different reasons. Maybe it's to feel more energetic, or just to get healthier overall, or the classic, to lose weight. Most of the time, they just don't work though. That's where tech could help. We've discussed before on Babbage how wearable technologies are enabling a much more sophisticated way of monitoring our personal health. Now we're also seeing the same technologies being tailored for our nutrition, too. Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly award winning podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, the Economist's science correspondent. Today we'll be exploring how technology can help to monitor and improve your diet. We'll examine nutrition's newest frontiers. Nowadays, you don't just count your calories, you can enhance your microbiome and monitor your blood sugar, all while you eat. What impact could these new digital technologies have on personal and public health? To explore digital tools, health and nutrition, I'm joined by Slavea Chankova, The Economist's healthcare correspondent and expert on all things wearable technology. Hi, Slavea. Hello, Alok. It's great to have you here. Uh, We've talked a lot on the show before about using wearable devices and sensors to diagnose diseases, to, to manage diseases even to new technologies that can help people to treat diseases. Um, You're definitely the expert here at The Economist on all of that stuff. But today we're going to be talking about how these wearable devices um, can be used as part of an ecosystem of things to impact metabolism and nutrition and diets. So talk to me about that. I mean, is this a field that's also growing too?
3: Yes, absolutely. Wearable devices and and their associated apps or rather... The AI that runs on these apps have been used for many, many years by uh, tech enthusiasts to hack their metabolism.
1: What does that mean, hacking your metabolism? That sounds quite dangerous to me.
3: <laughs> no, it's just kind of uh, fancy words for trying to change your diet to deliver more energy, more Brain clarity, all those things. But what these people were doing, uh, they were basically attaching glucose monitors to their arms. Those are small devices that can measure your blood sugar in real time. And then basically monitoring how various foods they ate impacted their blood sugar levels. So whether it rose quickly, which is not a good thing, or it remained relatively stable, which is what you want after you eat. So this kind of exercise has over time, become an actual field of research. And it's something that we now know as personalised nutrition.
1: Okay, this is another facet of that growing field of quantified self that you wrote about um, in a special report a few months ago. Um, So tell us more about what personalised nutrition is.
3: So personalised nutrition is the idea that The same food may affect two people very differently. So a banana may cause your blood sugar to spike a lot and then dip, uh, which is not a good thing because then you're hungry, you eat more calories to compensate. And for me, it may be perfectly fine. Like it may just keep me full for hours so I won't be hungry. And personalized nutrition tries to work out what are each individual's good foods and bad foods, or not good and bad, but they're rather on a spectrum. So basically trying to give people advice on what what they should emphasise in their diets, but without limits um, of, you know, strictly like saying you shouldn't eat that at all.
1: Okay, well, this kind of makes sense. Everyone is unique and our metabolisms are very, very complicated. So what kinds of things can personalising your nutrition help you with?
3: So... Weight loss is is the obvious uh, thing that most people are interested in. Adopt a new a new diet or a new way of eating, but we know that what you eat influences your energy levels. Some foods make you feel more sluggish. Uh, others do not have that effect. They may impact the quality of your sleep. And, of course, they reduce the likelihood of some diseases because if you have a diet that causes you blood sugar spikes all the time, then over time that may damage in a more permanent way your sugar response. So that can lead to metabolic diseases like diabetes, for example. 80% of chronic illness is due to poor diet. So changing people's diets is treatment, like if you properly...
1: So wearables and apps promise to help change people's individual diets. And it should be said that tech companies have promised all this for a very, very long time. And, um, you know, some of it's always been a bit of a marketing ploy, hasn't it? But Slavea, you've been trying out some of the latest generation of these technologies, haven't you? So tell me a bit about the one you've been having a go on.
3: Yes, I'm I'm in fact uh, currently trying out one personalized nutrition program called ZOE which has originated from research out of King's College London, uh, along with uh, several other universities. And they are looking at controlling fats, blood sugar, and the gut microbiome, which are the trillions of bacteria living in your, your gut, uh, which process everything you eat. And that's really quite a different way of thinking about diet rather than, you know, uh, telling you that you should completely stop eating specific uh, food groups entirely or limit your calories. So the way the program works is uh, they send you a big box which contains some testing kits and some scientific muffins, as they call them. And in fact, when the kit arrived in the office, I opened it in the studio with our producer, Jason. Alright, right. So I have the Zoe box of goodies. Gosh, it's quite a big box. Um, Let's see what's inside. Okay. So there is one that says muffins. And there's a box that says blood and gut health sample kits, which I expect will be trickier than the muffins box.
4: Okay. So what's in the sample kit? What does that mean?
3: Um, so there are two so one one of them is uh, let's see so you have to take a poo sample for your microbiome chest and the other one is to take a blood sample after you eat the muffins so they can see what's happening in your blood um, after these I think they call them scientific muffins they're specially designed um, let's see I think they're vegan.
4: Okay, and those are the muffins, so let's have a little look at them.
3: So, so muffins they're oh they're quite big.
4: Ooh, they so, look tasty.
3: Three for breakfast and two for lunch. So it will be a day of muffins.
4: Okay, so you don't eat anything else during the day, you just tomorrow morning you're just gonna have one of the muffins for breakfast.
3: No, it's three for breakfast. Three. And then uh, for lunch you have two more. And that's all you eat until you take your blood sample two hours later.
4: Okay, so when do you do the poo sample?
3: Uh, That one is the day before.
4: So, okay, so you're going to do that today and then tomorrow you're going to have your muffins and then two hours after the breakfast muffins or the dinner muffins where you do your blood? The
3: lunch muffins. So after you've eaten five muffins, you have to take a blood sample so they can see what's going on with the sugar and fat levels as a result of these uh, customized muffins.
4: Great. So you'll have your lunchtime muffins and then to do the blood test, it's a finger prick blood test, right? Can you just explain how that works?
3: Yeah. So there is a, a small lancet that you just use to draw a little bit of blood from your finger and then you have to put a couple of drops on sort of cardboard tray, just target a tiny square, fill it up with a few drops of blood um, and then let it dry for an hour before you send it off in the mail.
4: Okay. Sounds easy enough. I'm
3: a bit nervous about that one, to be honest, I think. (laughs) After that, I went home and the next day I had to eat the muffins and do the tests Alright, muffins for breakfast. Um, They don't look too bad. Um, I just have to microwave them so they taste a little better, they say. They're a bit chewy, but um, edible. Um, I don't know if I'll be able to finish the whole thing. It's a lot. Okay, two muffins down. One more to go. I'm kind of fed up with the muffins. Um, All right, one more. Now I have to lock them, yep, and I have to fast for four hours, and then have lunch. More muffins, yay!
1: So these weren't the most delicious muffins, but maybe, you know, that's the point of a scientific experiment. You're not meant to enjoy it, mean this is, this is science, remember? So you've sent off the samples, um, what happened next?
3: Well, a couple of weeks later, I got my results. So it was a report, kind of like a PowerPoint, uh, which said, here, here is a breakdown of uh, your gut microbes, the good and the bad bacteria. And the zoe scientists, they have uh, identified 15 good and 15 bad Bacteria, so those are kind of like the ones that they really focus on. So we get this report, and it says, you know, here's how the balance uh, of these in your body compares to other people, and they've measured this for, you know, thousands of people in their research. And then it also tells you how your body processes fats and sugars, so basically your response to those after you eat them, so how quickly it can clear fats which has an an impact on if you have a fatty meal for breakfast can you have one uh, for lunch as well that kind of thing
1: okay well we'll find out a bit more about your personal nutrition plan um, in a moment but first let's dive into some of the science behind the technology
5: microbiome are actually all our surfaces of our body that are exposed to the outer environment have bacteria, microbes colonising it.
1: Mona Bajaj-Elliot is a microbiome expert at University College London.
5: We've got an open mouth, food goes in, those are the microbes that sit in our gut, in different parts of the gut, majority sit in the colon, constitute the gut microbiome. The gut microbiome is of course very special because this is one area where nutrition microbes and our immune system collide directly with each other so there's a lot of interaction and conversation between these three and that's rather unique about the gut microbiome and its impact on our health
1: evidence is becoming stronger that the gut microbiome that's the ecosystem of trillions of bacteria in the gut has an outsized impact on our general health
5: now we are finding that they're not just helping us digest food in our gut, but they make lots and lots of different chemicals. And uh, these chemicals travel through our bloodstream and they have a major impact on the health of other organs. For example, brain health, with mental health, lung health. So this is a new area that has emerged in the last, I would say, two decades, which is really making us appreciate how much these microbes do for us.
1: Various different types of bacteria in the gut help to break down the various ingredients and chemicals in food in much more efficient ways than the body could do alone. Keeping those bacteria thriving is important to keeping the body healthy.
5: And one good example of that is the tryptophan amino acid, which when it's broken down by the microbiome um, specific bacteria again, it releases serotonin and that family of neurotransmitters. And serotonin does two big things. A, it's very good for brain health. And number two, it promotes um, what you call gut transit time, so you can have a more regular bowel movement. Eating the right kind
1: of foods is not only good for your own body's health, it's also crucial to ensuring that a large and diverse collection of microbes can live and function within your gut.
5: Whatever you put in your mouth, firstly, you're feeding those microbes before you're feeding yourself. So do think of personalised nutrition as something not just for you, because if you keep those guys happy, you'll be consequently healthier yourself. But mechanistically, we're still trying to understand it.
1: One of the organisations that's both trying to understand the mechanisms of microbes better and implement a personalised nutrition programme is ZOE. That's the system that uses the scientific muffins that Slavea tested out
4: earlier. It's a programme that starts by testing every individual in their individual responses to food. Tim Spector is a
1: professor of genetic epidemiology at King's College London. He also co-founded
4: Zoe. So we test your response to carbohydrates by measuring your blood sugar levels, your response to fats by measuring your blood fat levels, and we test your gut microbiome and we combine all those results together using algorithms to then give you individualized food scores so that you can make sensible choices about which foods best suited for you and your metabolism. And then having got those results, there's a a program which is used through the app where you talk to a digital nutritionist. To guide you through for several months as you try to change your diet and plan your foods around your own insights into your own biology and metabolism. And the idea is that at the end of, say, around three months, you come up with strategies that in general will give you more energy, make you less hungry, and in many cases lose weight without once talking about calories or traditional Ways of assessing food like fat content, etc.
1: It might sound fairly straightforward, but the algorithm behind the app has to tie together lots of different factors to produce useful results for users.
4: Our algorithm was also tweaked by things like age and sex, and we found that other effects like whether you've done exercise before, what you ate the day before, whether you slept well or badly the night before also impacts these scores. So there's, there's lots of things that go into this algorithm to try and standardise it because many things affect how we respond to food.
1: Slavea mentioned earlier that the company is taking an entirely different approach to dieting by avoiding calorie counting. I asked Tim
4: Spector why. We have to break the myth that calories are the core because this is the biggest diet myth out there. You can't measure calories, you can't measure your output, and yet all the advice is based around calories. So for the vast majority of all of us, there's no point in going on a crash calorie-restricted diet because you will bounce back. And we know that the idea that a calorie is equal is also nonsense because we did a study showing that the people that, when eating a muffin, get a big sugar dip two hours, three hours later, Actually, it's unbeknownst to them, but this is on their readings, are going to overeat by nearly 300 calories over the next 24 hours compared to people who don't. Instead, they focus
1: on the microbiome, fats and blood sugar.
4: People with these large sugar peaks and large fat peaks continuously who are eating the wrong foods we know that that produces inflammation and increases visceral fat and is associated cross-sectionally in our data with many bad outcomes and other groups have shown that as well. So there's a general belief that these peaks are bad and therefore if you can reduce the peaks, that should be good. Now our data are observational so far. So people who've completed the program are showing 80% uh, have less problems with uh, hunger, uh, feeling more energy and on average are losing some weight but that's observational that's not a wouldn't stand up as a randomized trial so we are currently doing a randomized controlled trial and we should have the results uh, by the end of the year to formally assess whether our program rather than just in general has all these benefits that we believe it does have and people are reporting to us in a more systematic way
1: The point to underline here is that though it's grounded in some interesting science, it's still very early days for the ZOE technology. Metabolism is a fiendishly complicated thing. And frankly, you need a lot of data points before you can start to get a handle on it.
4: We've now got 30,000 people's microbiome results and their food results. So the insights of linking the foods with particular microbes and how to grow them up or decrease them has amazing potential for the future and also for probiotics and supplements and other ways of eating that we'd only get this at this massive scale because previously all other studies have you know been a few hundred people so to suddenly have this incredible data set of people you can go back to and intervene with and get follow up i think is unprecedented
1: that also helps to tweak the algorithm for the digital nutritionist
4: now we have 30 times the number of data points that we had when we started. We are continually updating our algorithms to broaden our concept of what is normal and get it more and more generalizable. And we hope in the future to include data points on people with particular health problems as well. So we can say what's normal for someone with irritable bowel syndrome, or what's normal for someone who's on a gluten-free diet, etc. Of course, scientists
1: still have a long way to go and need to collect even more data about the full diversity of microbiomes all around the world. As Mona Bajaj-Elliot told me.
5: A paper has just come out in the last two, three months highlighting that majority of the microbiome studies, at 40% have come from the US so far. And what's interesting is 40% from the US and yet US only represents 4% of the world's population. And there are at least 120 countries where there's absolutely no information.
1: To design fairer, better algorithms, diverse data sets are absolutely essential. I'm back with Slavea Chankova, our healthcare correspondent, who's been trying out Zoe, uh, the app and all of the testing and the scientific muffins and all of the rest, Slavia, you got your results from the initial tests. Um, what did they tell you?
3: So I, I was actually quite pleased uh, by my results. I had quite a good diversity of gut microbes, which the more diverse it is, the better. And then I had a you know, much better than average response to fats and sugar, and average being you know, the people in the Zoe studies. So um, however representative that might be.
1: That does sound really impressive. These results from apps like these are going to be the new bicep flexing, aren't they? So look at look at how healthy I am. <laughs> <laughs> how do you actually go about using the app then? Once you've got your excellent results, what do you do with it all for the app?
3: Well, then the way the app works is it tells you, okay, you know, here here is a list of foods uh, which are particularly good for you. And there weren't many surprises there. I mean, meat, processed meat was horrible. You know, Donuts are bad for you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but then um, we, did, we did stuff that is healthy, you know, fruits and veggies and rice and, and so on. There was a, quite a bit of variation, actually. So it was interesting to see that I was actually <laughs> relieved to see that my favorite veggies and fruits were good and the ones that were relatively bad for me, like, you know, watermelon, which I love, <laughs> was actually very, very bad. But fortunately... Watermelon
1: other... is bad. Wait, wait, wait. It's Just very, very
3: sugary, apparently. I think I think that's, I, that's oh. what the problem is with, with oh, that. No. And then oh, no. blo- blueberries, which I eat every morning almost... Um, are not, not as good as some other uh, types of fruit. The idea is that the more diverse your diet is of plant-based foods, the better your microbiome will be. So I guess even if you eat lots of fruits and veggies, but you eat you know, a small variety of the same thing, that's probably not that great over time.
1: Yeah. I mean, none of that surprises me, to be honest, and I'm sure it doesn't surprise you either. But But I guess it's really interesting to have the individual level information actually that's that's really fascinating um you've been using zoe for a while has it changed the way you think about your diet
3: a little bit um i mean mostly about how i combine things because it basically gives you guidance on what to eat but in a a very interesting way so for example you enter what you're planning to eat and then it gives you a score and you know if the score is above 50, that's good. The higher it is, the better. And then you can add various ingredients and see how that changes the score. So that has been, you know, quite illuminating. And, you know, I've changed my breakfast a little bit. I've added some healthy fats to my oatmeal at breakfast, which actually has helped me feel fuller for longer so I don't have to eat a snack uh, before lunch. And, and those are the kinds of things that I didn't really realize before.
1: In terms of actually using the app and interacting with it, how often were you engaging with the app? I mean, how much of a burden is it putting all the food details in there all the time?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's not—it's not just to get bored. It's also pretty hard if you're not making uh, your meals from scratch, and, and even if you were, just entering every single you know a pinch of salt and a pinch of black pepper. Yeah, it's incredibly tedious. A sprinkling of oregano. Yeah, but if you eat out, you're just trying to guess <laughs> what, yeah. what's in your um, in the thing that you've, you're eating, and which actually has its benefits because then you try to find out and you're like, "Oh my god, there." 25 <laughs> different ingredients in this sauce. Um, but, yeah, it is a little bit of work, but um, they try to do it in a kind of fun way and try to do it in a more kind of like bite-sized lessons and tasks. And so you you can just do a little bit at, the, at a time. And that's how I've been using it. Sometimes I'll just sit down and like there are days when I'll just log everything Then I'll look at how my score changes and how a snack that I thought was healthy actually wrecks my score. Um, But, you know, then I won't use it for a couple of days if I'm busy or eating out a lot.
1: Have you seen any limitations or things you'd like to see improved um, in the way that the app or the system works?
3: I don't know. I mean, I I wish I could just take a picture of my plate and some sort of super clever AI disassembles this and just enters everything into the app. They have a a function where you can scan the label on packaged foods, and then it will automatically enter, you know, the data and say, like, here, this is, like, really good for you or this is horrible for you and give you the, the score. They they have quite a lot of foods already that they've entered in their database, but not that many. I mean, I've definitely been scanning things from uh, kind of mainstream supermarkets, which are not yet in their database.
1: Personalised nutrition has already started entering its tech phase. We'll be back with Slavea shortly, but first, you can read all of Slavea's reporting on personalised nutrition and digital health on our website. That includes her brilliant future-gazing piece called What If Everyone's Nutrition Was Personalised? There's a link to that in the show notes. But remember, you can only access it with a subscription. Head to economist.com slash podcast offer for your best deal. Coming up, we'll explore how your metabolism can be hacked even further by combining nutrition programs with sensors and more digital tools. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business... a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Today on Babbage, we've been exploring how modern sensors and wearable technologies can be tied together with the very latest in metabolic science to make people eat better and live more healthy.
6: Well, i um, the founder and CEO of HealthifyMe, Me, um, India's largest digital health company.
1: Tushar Vashisht Healthify is an entrepreneur in India.
6: We help people improve their metabolic health, uh, their diet and fitness, via uh, behavior changes, by some of the most cutting-edge technologies today available in mobile, IoT, and coaching services.
1: Okay, so tell me what the program of Healthify Me aims to do. You know, why why have an app like this?
6: You know, so we, we started with a mission to Healthify a billion, and uh, that's what we've been striving to do. The journey began with a calorie counter, a nutrition tracker, for Indian, Southeast Asian foods. Um, evolved a coaching services on top of that, which we felt that it accelerates behavior change uh, through nudges that our coaches could offer, diet and fitness strategies that we could deliver. And utilizing the data behind all of the nutrition tracking and fitness tracking we had, as well as the coaching connections that we had, we could build an AI model that also does the same effectively. And, you know, that's the one piece that we, feel we felt could scale to a billion people.
1: And what does it mean to healthify somebody?
6: (laughs) Great question. I think it means, frankly, making small changes to lifestyle that end up creating a large impact on your metabolic health. So it could be smart replacements of food, uh, diet and fitness strategies that actually have a remarkable impact over the longer run to help people lose weight, to help people reduce the impact of What is commonly known as metabolic syndrome or lifestyle diseases
1: healthify me started as a calorie counting app but it's now a health system which uses continuous glucose monitors also known as cgms allows users to track their exercise and also measure biomarkers in their blood such as cholesterol Tashar told me that one day the system will also take into account information about a person's microbiome too. All of that stream of data powers a piece of AI software that acts as a personalised coach.
6: When you start your programme, you can put on a CGM patch for two weeks and we expect our customers to be able to track their calories and their nutrition on top of that as well. Now, we allow that via even photo tracking or uh, simply typing or tracking, etc. And we're able to correlate what foods create high glycemic spikes, what foods create very steady spikes like for example beer is really bad for me but wine and champagne is not so bad for me given my personal profile
1: that's lucky champagne yeah you wouldn't want champagne (laughs) to cause you
6: problems oh my god literally champagne problems right um so it helps me design strategies around what i would like to consume and not consume and along with that of course it comes integrated with steps counting it comes integrated with you know your heart rate or sleep if you are plugging in an Apple Watch or a Fitbit or any of the other gadgets. And, you know, all of this data stream sort of comes together and our coaches are able to look at that data stream and come up with smart strategies that you can use, to, you know, to good advantages. So, you know, if I go to a party, I should probably have a glass of wine and should probably keep walking around afterwards. Walk and talk more than sit and relax. <laughs> and so with the blood work thrown in, in the middle, that kind of completes the last piece that we need to be able to create effective strategies. And you can measure yourself on our smart scale and see whether you're actually losing fat or losing muscle and how is that progress happening over time.
1: The company has also done extensive work on how to keep people engaged with the technology. But does it work?
6: We've helped people lose 22 million pounds of weight in the last, you know, one and a half years itself. And this is tracked, you know, both self-reported but in the last 12 months actually tracked via the smart scale that people step on and that gets connected back into our systems. But uh, but we need more data to be able to actually report this in clinical papers, which we hope to do so in the next few months.
1: So will you be doing clinical trials
6: then? Absolutely. In fact, there was a study sponsored by NHS itself, you know, in South India for pre-diabetic population. We just started off with one here in India, but we do hope to do more more such studies across the world for different lifestyle conditions with this system. I think it's the first time someone is really integrating many of these technologies together, and you can always see the feedback loop, reflect on it, and use experts to really drive better strategies.
1: Now, it sounds really exciting, and it sounds like it could have a huge impact on people's health all around the world and especially as the rates of obesity go up and lifestyle diseases are on the increase it seems like a sensible thing to have all this technology i just wonder if you could talk a bit more about accessibility i mean the promise won't be met if people can't afford to buy the products and in places like india where there's a greater proportion of people who maybe can't afford these things i wonder what sorts of methods or focus have you got on making sure that as many people as possible can actually use these apps and these systems
6: you know i think india has been a fantastic place to innovate because India is actually 13 different countries combined into one, right? It's got regional, ethnic, language variations and complexities there. It also has a lower ability to pay than some of the Western counterparts. So from the get-go, we had to innovate for building a system that is hyper-local, that has local language variations in its foods and its coaches, and where the offering has to be available at less than $3 a month. So in fact, our choice to integrate AI heavily into our system was not really just a technological endeavor. It was a business critical need that we had to focus on. So today we have majority of our subscribers as AI subscribers and then minority are actually the coaching subscribers, you know, and, and I think that's the future, you know, so you'll always have people at the higher end who'll be willing to have access to higher end data generating and intervention technologies. So access to watches or CGMs and ability to pay for coaches. But you'll have people at the lower end of the pyramid who, thanks to these people at the higher end of the pyramid, can actually utilise and have access to AI-driven technologies at a cheaper price point.
1: To round everything off, The Economist's healthcare correspondent Slaver Chankova is with me again. Now, Slavea, it's, of course, very early days for all these digital metabolism tools. But do you think that they could end up making a real difference to public health?
3: If they are effective, which early indications are that they do work for for people who use them, uh, the question is how many people will use them. I do believe that what they teach you about this new way of eating will stay with you even, even after you stop using the app. I'm I'm quite convinced that's the case. The question is, you know, whether enough people will pick it up and use it for long enough to learn those lessons. And obviously it's simple and fun and easy, but lots of older people, it's too advanced. Like it's kind of like scary tech for them. And those are the people who often uh, stand to benefit most from this. So... Yeah, it's a question that's very, very hard to answer. I mean, we'll just have to wait and see. Do you think that um,
1: people will ever use or want to use these devices enough to actually stick to them? Because you, you need to make sure that, you know, you're using this for consistently for some time before you see results, right?
3: Yes, uh, and that's the biggest challenge. Can you keep users engaged for long enough? Can you make things easy enough for them that they want to comply? Uh, because, you know, It's easy to say you should be eating all these healthy snacks and combining them this way and that way. But if you're a busy mom running around, then uh, some of these things may not be practical. So some of these apps definitely invest on the practicality of things. So they give you kind of very uh, minute advice of how, how we can make it easier to eat your favorite foods and combine them the right way. Or they try to make it seamless to transmit data from from your smart devices, so you don't have to enter it manually. But how much data is too much?
1: Now, earlier on, you also talked about the vision for using these apps to improve diet and health. I mean, do you think they're good enough yet? I mean, are we still sort of in the earliest stages of this stuff, or is it or are you finding really useful things from it already?
3: So I think things are moving, improving very, very quickly with all these apps. And they're starting to measure results, which is, you know, really exciting. We can see how much they can change behavior, what kind of health improvements they can produce, uh, hopefully, you know, lasting improvements. But it's it's a really exciting time because, you know, there are no longer... The gimmicks that they were for the occasional tech bro who, who wanted to quantify you know, his body. There are things that many different people from different walks of life can use and researchers can study.
1: And I suppose the most telling question in all of this, um, are you going to continue using the Zoe app?
3: I don't know. Um, I think maybe maybe for another week or so. I'm I'm already getting the knack of what I need to do with my diets and what are the easy ways to make these changes in my daily routine. So yeah, I'll have to see. I mean, I'm kind of midway or a little bit more than midway through. So I have to see what what else they they have to offer. But I've been enjoying it uh, so far, just from my very personal experience. I was a little surprised because I didn't expect to learn much, but. I did learn some things that I didn't suspect. For example, rice is not very good for me. Bread, even if you have, you know, the artisanal bakery, bread loaf uh, scores about the same as, you know, the cheap supermarket (laughs) uh, packaged bread. So that kind of changed a little bit my view on, you know, quality food is better.
1: Okay, Slavia, thank you very much indeed.
3: Thank you. It was fun talking to you.
1: Personalised nutrition has always been just over the horizon, but today it's sort of real. Wearable devices and cheap blood and other lab tests can allow any of us to monitor our health almost continuously in ways that might have seemed impossible just a few years ago. It's by no means perfect. There's a long way to go, a lot of testing and proving to do before personalized recommendations become an easy, simple tool that's useful for everyone, rather than just a few early tech adopters who want to take a peek at what's going on inside their bodies. And smart systems won't appeal to everyone, even for those people who you might think it appeals to the most. So I
2: didn't track myself at all, which is pretty amazing. I'm a guy who wrote a book called Big Data, and I love the idea of self-tracking, and I have an Apple Watch for the purpose of tracking myself. My wife has a scale that can measure everything from body mass to bone index to metabolism and all that. And although I have gotten onto the scale now more recently in the last month or so, in the past, when I was in the middle of the diet and the beginning of the diet, I absolutely didn't even want to think about it. I wanted to just cast that as far away from my mental space as possible. So I very deliberately did not use technology.
1: Now, Ken's avoidance of technology worked for him, at least this time. I've probably
2: lost about 15 to 20 pounds and I've gone down not one but two sizes. It's relevant to say that I am wearing clothing that I should have given to charity a long time ago that are basically 15 years old, things that were just really nice but I never thought I'd fit into, I'm now wearing again.
1: But this just goes to show how personal health and nutrition regimes really are. Ken, if you're listening, next time you try any diet regimes, remember, there's an app for that. So far on Babbage, we've explored a number of different angles on the story of digital health, from how to ensure privacy is protected, to how to use apps to actually treat conditions. You can catch up with all of them at economist.com slash Babbage wearables. That's all one word, Babbage wearables. And we'll be sure to keep adding to that coverage as our digital health future continues to accelerate. Our thanks to Mona Bajaj-Elliot, Tim Spector, Tushar Vashist and The Economist's Slavea Chankova. Thanks so much to you also for listening to this episode of Babbage. I'm now off for my summer holidays but the newly leaner, muscle-bound, intellectual powerhouse that's Kenneth cukier will be looking after you for the next few weeks. You're in very good hands. See you soon. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin, with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Alok Jha, and in London, this is The Economist.